Hello and welcome to the Cat Maste Chronicles podcast. We have exciting, interesting and powerful stories from pet owners about their projects, businesses and ventures. I'm your host, Michelle Adams, founder of Chatty Cats Care, London's professional cat sitting company. Join me as I dive deep into conversation with pet owners to chat about their individual journeys and of course, their beloved pets. Tune in every Wednesday for a new episode. Hello and welcome to episode 51 of the Cat Mass Day Chronicles podcast. This week we are joined by Kelly McCallum. I've known Kelly for a few years now and not only is she a very talented artist but she's also a wonderful person. Kelly uses a multitude of techniques in her art and some of her new work in a moleskin sketchbook focuses on colour and the way ink and watercolour interact on the page. She loves creating in a wide variety of media including extremely detailed pieces of jewellery, wearable art and sculpture. She also trained in animal science and pre-veterinarian studies, so I'm intrigued to find out even more about this wonderful woman and her many talents. So without further ado, thank you so much for joining us today, Kelly. I've already briefly introduced you, but if you could tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself, that would be great. Okay, hi, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. And uh as, as you said, I'm Kelly McCollum, and I'm an artist. I've been an artist pretty much my whole life. Um, I was in London, where I went to the Royal College of Art for about 10 years. And then um, about four years ago, I moved here to Portugal, to the south, south part of Portugal, mm-hmm. um, where I now live. And I built an art studio here, so I'm working and living here. Um, with my two kids and my husband and um yeah it's going really well it just took a while to sort of set everything up but now now that it's kind of here it's been really great to to be able to work in this new environment and and yeah yeah it must be such a contrast as well like coming from a city and then going to Portugal yeah and we're we're on a kind of farm so we're really Mm. quite quite rural we have a lot of nature and stuff around us which nice it is very different but I'm really enjoying it yeah yeah I can imagine so let's talk a bit about where it all began when did you realize or decide that you wanted to pursue an art um, pursue a career in art um, I was probably in high school um, so around 14 um, I I actually originally was really interested in doing theater and I went to boarding school in the U.S., a school that specifically had a really strong arts and theater program. And uh, when I got there, I sort of I was did a little bit of theater, was in the plays. And then one day I kind of wandered into the art department and I basically just looked around and I was like, this is for me. <laughs> and, and yeah, I, I spent as much time as I possibly could in the art department in high school. Um, and I was really lucky because I had really great, really supportive teachers mm. who were not teaching just sort of 
what you call like the standard arts education for high school kids. Like they weren't teaching just drawing and things like that. We were learning about um, performance art. We were learning about um, sculpture and, and lots of different kind of ways of creating. Um, and we even, because I was in New Jersey, they even took us into, uh, into New York and we got to go and see like art exhibits in New York. And all of that was just really inspiring and really exciting to me. So um, from there, I, I just knew that's what I wanted to do. Um, and then I applied to the Royal, or to RISD, the Rhode Island School of Design. Mm. Um, and my parents took a little bit of convincing in the beginning, but I think, I think they just, they didn't see art as being kind of a, a real career, or I think they, they thought art school wasn't serious. Mm. You know, like you kind of go in to have fun and, um, but honestly doing, uh, doing the courses at, at Rhode Island School of Design were some of the most difficult, you know, in terms of work, the most, yeah, the most difficult years in terms of like, when we pulled all-nighters all the time finishing projects. And it was, it was a very serious, very competitive course. Mm -hmm. No, I can imagine, because there's that misconception that like arts degrees are just like easy degrees, like you can't really get much out of them. But some of them as well, like you've mentioned, because I also studied like art degrees in theatre and stuff. And I remember just all of the work being so intense sometimes. I think even more so because it is creative. So sometimes because you have that freedom, I feel like, I don't know if it's the same for you, but I felt like I was putting even more pressure on myself to kind of like yeah. get it right. Yeah. And, and you, I mean, most people are there because they love what they're doing, Yeah, you know, and, and it's, it was a great experience as well for me to come from, you know, high school where, you know, in most high schools, you have sort of one or two people per class that are like, the art kids, mm. right? Like the the best artists in the school or whatever, the kids that were really focused on that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And then you go somewhere like RISD and everybody was the art kid at their school. <laughs> um, and it, it puts you in a whole new kind of world, which is can be a little bit intimidating, but also can be really, just really exciting, really mm. fun to kind of have all these people that have, a passion for the same thing that you do exactly exactly so after graduating from fine art you changed your focus completely and studied a bachelor of science at the university of massachusetts graduating with top honors in animal science and pre-veterinarian studies firstly what led you to make this decision to work with animals and deflect from your art yeah so so I think to say that it was a complete departure, it doesn't, it doesn't really characterize what happened. Like for me, mm. it felt, it, because, so while I was at art school, I was doing yeah. um, a degree in photography Okay. and I was taking photographs of people's exotic animals, mm. people's exotic pets. So like um, snakes, lizards, alligators, um, but making portraits in which they looked really, um, I don't want to say it humanized them, but it it brought out what I felt was sort of their personality. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of looking for these these personalities in animals that 
most people don't see as having a personality. Mm. Most people don't, you know, don't see a, a character of a snake. That's true. Um, and I was kind of doing that. And, and when you meet people that have snakes as pets or lizards as pets, like they are very passionate about their pets. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a whole, it's a whole sort of community. And I was also working part-time at a, um, a, a exotic animal vet. Uh, mm-hmm. He was called the odd pet vet. And so um, I was, I was working there part-time and I was also, I was rest, I run a basically an animal rescue out of my apartment. Wow. Uh, for mostly exotic animals. Like I had over 40 animals in a small apartment what? at one point. Yeah. Okay. I need to know more about this. because This, is, <laughs> this yeah. is crazy. Okay. Tell me. So people would bring animals into the vet that they didn't want anymore, or they were sick and they didn't want to take care of them or, and I just took them home and the vet, because I was working there, he would help me to like give them the medication that they needed or to, you know, to help get them better. And so I would usually take them home, you know, get them better, get them back to health. And then I would try to find like someone to adopt them. Mm. Um, And some of them ended up staying with me because that's what happens. (laughs) Um, But when, you know, when I say I have 40 animals, like, you know, five of those were tree frogs. So they weren't, it wasn't like, like having 40 cats or dogs. Yeah. And they're quite different. Um, But yeah, so I'd spent all this time, you know, kind of with art and animals together. Mm. And so when I went to do the, the science degree, the pre-vet, it, it felt kind of like a natural next step at that point. Right. Um, So I went and I did, it was basically just, was a year or two years of just all the hard sciences because they had already gotten the credits for doing the liberal arts classes at art school. Mm, Um, and I enjoy, I enjoy science. I've always enjoyed that kind of stuff, but I felt, I felt like when I started that in my mind, I would be able to do both. I would be able to continue making art and to do, to do veterinary studies or science. Mm -hmm. And it kind of occurred to me halfway through that there were indeed not enough hours in the day to make that happen. Um, And, you know, when it really came down to it, I realized that when I was at art school, I was coming home every day, like really excited about my next project or really excited about making stuff. Mm. Uh, And when I came home every day from doing uh, veterinary studies, I, I didn't have that same level of passion. Like I, I enjoyed it, but for the amount of years of, of school that it was going to take to become a veterinarian, um, it just wasn't for me. I would, I would prefer to, you know, to help animals or look after animals in a different capacity. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so I decided then I'd taken a, a metalsmithing class just for fun. Um, and they, you know, it's the kind of really basic, they teach you how to make a ring. You learn how to cast things in silver, stuff like this. And I just, I really in- enjoyed doing it. And I liked how hands-on it was. Mm. Um, so doing photography, I was, I was doing it back in the day when you actually would, you know, get the trays of chemicals and put the paper in the trays of 
chemicals. And, and I liked that part of photography because it felt very hands-on as well. Yeah. yeah. But, but by that point, things were getting much more digital and, and you didn't really have a lot of that kind of photography anymore. Yes. Um, so I felt like I wanted to do something that was more, just more physical, more like using your hands in a way. Um, and so I loved this, this class and that one class basically made me decide I wanted to go into do uh, metalsmithing and jewelry. Nice. Um, so I actually went back to RISD and it was really amazing. I went to their, their department and I said, look, I already have a bachelor's degree, but I want to do a master's in metalsmithing and jewelry. And I've only taken this one class. I don't have a portfolio to apply with. I don't really have the skills to know what I'm doing. Like, can I just come and learn? And mm -hmm. I don't want a degree. I already have a degree. I just want to come and like, can I take your basic foundation class? Uh, and amazingly, they were like, sure, we can do that. Um, so I did the foundation course for metalsmithing. Um, but the teachers, because they knew that I was, they knew that I already had an art degree and they knew that I was working towards applying. They let me kind of adjust some of the projects so that I could make a portfolio, which I used to then apply to the Royal College of Art. Mm. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, and I was, I think, very lucky that they, they were also very open at the Royal College to having people in the program who were not, um, like, doing goldsmithing their entire undergrad. You know, like, there was another girl in our class who... Uh, was an architect and then she had also kind of gotten interested in metalsmithing and learned the basics and you know so it made for a really interesting kind of group of people because you had people coming from different backgrounds yeah yeah I think that's the best though because you get like a wide variety of different styles yeah and different points of view people yeah. have yeah and it's it was really it was really great to do that that program I really loved it yeah um, metal smithing is one of the oldest careers isn't it it's like yeah yeah and there's there's always new things to learn like I, I really enjoy the sort of craft aspect of it um and it can be very kind of meditative you know you're mm -hmm. like filing things and polishing things and you have to be quite accurate in terms of the pressure you use and and all of that but it once you kind of learn um so they call tacit knowledge. It's it's knowledge that's you can only learn by doing. Yeah. Okay. It's kind of like knowledge that's kind of in your hands instead of in your mind, if that makes right. sense. Yeah. And once you kind of learn that um, that skill and the way to do it, it's it can be very kind of just relaxing to to make in that way. Yeah, it's interesting you said that because there are a few things that I feel like you can't just like pick up a book and like learn how to do something like you need to physically do it so that it becomes solid in your mind and I guess yeah. with practice it just feels natural and like you said it feels sort of like meditation in a way and it must be a nice a nice art to practice actually yeah it's interesting I heard a story from a ceramics teacher actually talking about um they're using it as an analogy to talk about, about creating, about art. And I think one of the biggest problems people have is 
is like they stop themselves. They don't make enough. Like you have to make a lot of really bad art to make mm. any good art. Okay. And and they were saying the ceramics teacher, um, he said he broke his class in half and he said, Okay, half of my class, you guys are going to be graded by the pound of what you make. Mm. So you make <clears throat> this many, or I'm gonna weigh all of your projects at the end of the year and based on how how much you have made in volume, how many things you've done, um, that's going to be your grade. And he said to the other half, I'm going to, I'm going to base your grade on quality. I want to see just one piece and I want it to just be amazing. Blow me away. Mm. And interestingly enough, in his opinion, the work done by the people that were graded by the pound was better than the work of people who were just asked to make something beautiful and could go about that in any way they wanted. No way. Because it's practice. Everything is practice. Oh my gosh. That so, is, yeah. It really makes you put things into perspective because like you don't, you think automatically like the people who are told to make like an amazing piece of work would put everything into like making it nice. But like you said, it's practice. Practice makes perfect. And yeah. And obviously that, that also, you know, presupposes that the people working for volume are also wanting to make things that are good. Um, But a lot of it, I think is just, you learn through doing. Mm -hmm. It's so true. Why did you decide that you actually wanted to come to the Royal College of Art and and move to London? Because I guess, Um, yeah, it's quite different. I I came for the program. The Royal College of Art is, you know, it has a a reputation kind of all over the world of being a really great program. Um, And I actually, I remember I asked my teachers uh, who were, I was doing the metalsmithing course with, and I basically said, where's the, where's the best place? Like, where's the best school to do a master's? And they all said Doral College of Art. So, um, and thinking about it, I actually didn't even apply anywhere else, which was probably not very smart. But <laughs> <laughs> You just had your mind. Was, yeah, I just, I had my mindset. This is what I want. And, and I was very lucky that they accepted me. Amazing. What was it like? And what did you think about the art scene in London? Um, London was amazing. It was, um, I mean, I still love London up until recently. I was still going back every few months. Um, with my daughter just to see my friends and to go to exhibitions. I was taking her to see exhibitions and plays and things. Um, and I think especially, you know, I was, I was 20, 21 when I moved to London, it was a really exciting time. Mm-hmm. And um, I lived for a brief time in Soho and I shared a wall with a club called Madame Jojo's, which people from London will know is mm-hmm. It's. I don't think it's around anymore, but it's a very loud, very kind of crazy place. And, um, you know, I was right in the middle of, of all of that. And it was, you know, it was great. I made some really wonderful friends. And, you know, I think I didn't recognize how how privileged I was to be able to just see so many different um, exhibitions and plays mm-hmm. and different arts things and culture. Uh, until I moved here and you know we are in the farm we'd have none of that yeah um 
And I think, you know, it, that is one of the great things about, you know, I know people like to talk about the, sometimes the negative impacts living in a city can have on you. But I think for me, some of the most positive things was just, just to be exposed to all of that, to have all of that available to you was yeah. really, really wonderful. No, I agree. Like, I feel very privileged to live in London and get to access because like some of the the top artists and exhibitions have been here. Like, I remember I went to see Ai Weiwei, his exhibition. That was just amazing. And um, it's just such a great hub of just collection of art and creativity. It's honestly like I feel very lucky to live here but then on the flip side there are a few occasions that I wish I was on your farm and just taking that time out because sometimes it can get quite intense and you just need that time out yeah I also found for me one of the best places to look at art which I really really loved was to go to the auction houses like Sotheby's and Christie's Mm -hmm. especially because most of those works are going to go into private collections and you're not going to see them again. Yeah. So it, it felt a lot like, like you're going in and you're seeing these, you know, obviously it depends on what, um, you know, they have different style, different exhibitions with different yes. styles of works. But, um, but yeah, I saw some amazing, there's, I don't remember if it was Christie's or Sotheby's. One of them had a few years ago, an amazing auction of uh, surrealist works, mm. um, a huge collection. I spent, just days looking at all these paintings thinking like, wow, it's really unlikely I'm ever going to get to see them again because once they go into private collections, they're, they're no longer really available to view. Yeah. yeah. Um, but even just to have that, to able to just go in and, and it's, you know, they have the combination of all the big galleries like the Tate and, yeah. um, but then there's all, all the small galleries, all the really like, you know, we used to have, uh, when I lived in Shoreditch, they have uh, every Thursday, like all gallery night, opening night. And you just go to all these different galleries and it was really, yeah, it was just really a great experience. It is. It is. And Soho is a great place. I love the autograph gallery that they have there. That's really cool. Yeah. Um. So, so yeah. Yeah. Um, when you finished your studies... Your work was actually featured in some wonderful venues, including the Royal College of Art, Victorian Albert Museum, Goldsmiths, Sotheby's, Selfridges, Liberties, but also in a number of private collections like we've just spoken about. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and some of your work that was featured? Uh, Sure, yeah. Um, It was very exciting. I think Mm. the, um, the show with Sorry, the Victorian Albert Museum was was one of the most exciting sort of things for me, especially because uh, my work was selected to be in the show, but they also used a photograph of my work as the main advertisement for the V&A for that wow. exhibition. So it was in the subway. It was wow. huge posters at the V&A. It was, it was everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's funny, you know, sometimes you, you get news, good news when you need it most, I think. And when I found out that they were going to use my, my picture, I was having like just one of the worst days ever. I remember this so well, cause I had, I'd just broken up with my boyfriend at the time and I was just feeling really down and really, you know, not good. And a friend of mine had taken me to like a spa to get a facial to like make me feel better. And I remember I'm lying there on the table and she's putting like mud on my face or whatever. 
and some cheesy like romantic song comes on and I'm lying on this table just sobbing just <laughs> and I'm thinking I'm so embarrassed like this poor woman is like it's like it's really awkward and I'm like oh god so I come out I'm like oh this is just the worst of the worst like I just you know ruined that lady's day and I'm just crying and like in the middle of a facialist it's just so bad and I go into the changing room and I get my phone and there's a message on my phone saying like, this is whoever from the press office at the Victorian Album Museum would just like to know if you would give permission to use your picture. And I was like, oh man, like I needed that so Mm -hmm. badly today. And, um, and yeah, it was, it was really, especially because, you know, I was not so far out of college and yeah, you know, I was in a show with a lot, a lot of artists who are much more established than me, yeah. who are much, you know, much more experienced. Um, and so for me, that was just a really, a really special moment. And I still have one of the. I asked, I asked them afterwards from the press office if they had any extra posters that had been printed for the subway or for the two. And I have one still in my studio oh, on the wall nice. now. Good. I was going to ask if you had if you had anything still, but it's so nice. Keep it forever. Keep it for your memories. That's just amazing. It's such a big achievement. And what was like? What was your artwork like back then? Because I know it's changed. You know. Quite um, a- yeah. So I was doing um, basically combining taxidermy with mm-hmm. precious metals and wow. kind of jewelry materials, um, and sort of. The, the piece specifically that was at the V&A is a fox that I had found at an old um, auction house and it, its ears were all broken. Okay. Um, so they were kind of already like quite damaged. And I made these uh, gold uh, maggots. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I put the gold maggots kind of all in the ear as if they were kind of eating the ears. Yeah. Um, and it was, for me, it was a lot of taking things that, that people find kind of disturbing or gross, um, especially things in nature and kind of elevating them with using precious materials and using this kind of fine craft to, to replicate them. Wow. I love that. I love that you kind of go against the grain as well and you do something that's so different. And I think the best kind of art or the best, books or films even are those that make people feel uncomfortable or think about things in Mm. so yeah yeah. and I I guess I I was I was also just really drawn to this this idea of sort of things that people are disgusted by or people Mm. things that people are disturbed by and trying to to kind of change that in a way or to make people look at that because you know it a lot of that stuff is just sort of natural process of, mm-hmm. um, of things going back to the earth and, but the reality of it can be quite disturbing to us as, as human beings. Yeah. Yeah. But it's funny because that's just a part of life, isn't it? Like we're all slowly disintegrating sadly, but that's just <laughs> yeah. that's life, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, I would like to know a bit more about some of the influences uh, behind your work. I know that one of them includes one of my favourite artists, which is Frida Kahlo. Um, What is it? And also, what is it about these particular artists that you love the most? 
Um, well, Frida Kahlo, I mean, she's, she's obviously one of the most famous women artists, period. Um, and I love that she, she was just so unapologetically herself mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in a way. And she had this very, um, just very fascinating character of, of who she was and, um, and the way she kind of put herself out there. Um, I also really, I really like uh, the work of Louise Bourgeois. Okay. Who, she, she's mostly known for doing the huge sculptures of spiders, which you might've seen. There's one, I think at the Tate. Um, but she also did a lot of really interesting work with textiles and with um, stitching where she would collect different, just different types of textiles and stitch them together to make different um, pieces, different, um, some sculptural work, some flat pieces. And she also did a lot of really great printmaking and uh, painting. So she kind of did a little bit of everything. Yeah. Which I really, I guess I relate to a little bit. Yeah. Um, And she also, um, you know, just as a person, like she was, she was making work pretty much throughout her entire life. She passed away a few years ago and she was like 98 years old, still making work. And I'm like, and I'm just like that. That's what I want. That is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and and her work is it's interesting and it's it's beautiful, but it's also a little bit it has a little bit of darkness to it. Some of it, yeah. Um, which I really I really like. Um, I'm trying to think of who else I would say. There's a Polish artist called Magdalena Abakanowicz who I really appreciate. She also does work with kind of fabric textiles. Um, and she did this whole series of backs, which was like a sculptural series of, of just lot, rows and rows of, of backs made out of uh, fabric. Mm. And I, I remember seeing uh, one of the iterations of that sculpture in, uh, in Japan years ago. Mm-hmm. And I just, it was outside. They had actually cast the backs into bronze for that like, exhibition. And I think it, was, it had become a permanent part of the museum. But they were out sort of in the landscape. And I remember just walking out and having this moment of like, this is amazing. Mm. Um, And, and so, yeah, I remember that that always really inspired me as well. Nice. I love that they're, they're female as well. Like, um, because I guess, you know, back in the day, um, like we had this conversation with uh, Katie Commodore in the previous episodes, Um, like I guess female artists were not really recognized that much. Yeah. So Um, yeah, well talking about that, the gorilla girls are also a big, um, I'd say I'm a huge fan of theirs. It's a group of of women artists who uh, have, I think since the seventies going around in like, gorilla masks and exposing a lot of these inequities in the in the art world okay um like I actually have a a poster from them on my wall that says less than five percent of the artists in the modern art sections are women in the met but 85 percent of the nudes are female wow so you know they they post things like that and talking about um how women artists get paid less how women artists are represented less um and especially i think i think having children really really affects um 
affects a woman, a female artist's ability to, to be successful, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Because I think, you know, I think there's this, I mean, I guess if the arts are not the only place that's true, it's kind of, unfortunately, there's a, a tax for, for women who have children in the workforce that unfortunately is not applied to men really. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it's sad that it's still a thing, but um, I mean, we must keep going and hope and push for change, you know? Yeah. And I think, you know, there are a lot of great, um, great people out there supporting women artists and, and just continuing to kind of to work with them and to support what they're doing is, is really important. Yeah. I'm just trying to remember. I can't remember on, um, there's a great, it's called art Queens on Instagram, a really great, um, uh, group that you know kind of show women women artists work and help support um younger artists who are trying to you know to find their way so to speak nice I'll have to look them up because I know quite a few because you know one of my degrees we we focused on creativity and art so I know quite a few people who are you know still trying to find their way as an artist so it would be great to you know recommend um organizations or people that are able to support them yeah so your work I would say is quite eclectic because like we've mentioned earlier you kind of work with a variety of materials and styles and obviously it's changed quite a lot now from you know your kind of style of of taxidermy and 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 that kind of work but why did you decide to change your work as in the style of it can you tell the listeners a little bit more about your older pieces versus newer newer work um yeah I don't I don't know if I decided to change it just kind of changed like I think also my life, my, my life completely changed. Like yeah. when I left London. Um, so the work that I was doing when I was in London, I was, you know, mostly kind of single. I was just, just me. I was, you know, all of these things just working myself and, you know, flash forward a few years, I'm moving to Portugal with a four month old baby. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and living here on a farm and, you know, I had the beginning, I think I had a, I had a hard time making, making work for a while, partly just because, um, I didn't really know what I wanted to make anymore. And the, the work I'd been doing before didn't feel like, it just didn't feel like I wanted to do that. Right. Um, and, and I think I, I resisted kind of making totally new work. I resisted working with paint instead of sculpture at first because I think I had sort of, I felt I was expected to continue doing work in the style that I had been doing previously. Okay. Okay. Um, and then I kind of had a moment where I was like, yeah, but who's expecting anything? Like just, just make what, what makes you happy and then figure out what to do with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I started doing that, I've, I've just, I've been like really productive in the last year and I've been just making lots and lots of work and, and not worrying so much about 
about who's going to like it or where I'm going to show it or any of that. And to be honest, it's been a huge relief and it's just been such an amazing feeling to just, just make for the sake of making. Mm. Um, and, you know, I've been, especially because I, I've not been able to, to contact galleries or do any of that because of the, the lockdown and stuff. We haven't really, you know, everything's been closed. So it kind of took away that pressure of like, I should be doing this or I should be doing that. Um, and yeah, it's been, it's been really great. I've, I've just been sharing my, my work on Instagram, which has also been, yes. it's been actually really a positive feeling. Cause I feel like I'm still, I'm still sharing what I'm doing. People are still appreciating it. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're not, I'm not working completely in a, a bubble. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's been really, really great to just let go of kind of feeling like I have to do something because I did it before. Yes. I think maybe it sounds like you're really enjoying the process, like of course creating the work, but then maybe the lockdown period had kind of given you that time to really find what you wanted to do and how you wanted it to be presented because I love the way your Instagram looks by the way I think you're doing a really good job and I just love like I love to see your work because I don't know I just feel like it really I don't know maybe it's the colors that you use but I feel like each piece really like reflects a different mood for me um some of your work like some of the red colors that you've used kind of like makes me feel like I don't know intimacy and I can imagine that work kind of like pinned up in my bedroom and then some of the other work makes me feel like quite I don't know like open or like natural so I'd kind of like see that at the front of the house that's near the door kind of like representing going into like a garden or nature I don't know maybe that's just my own interpretation but um yeah I've really loved I love to hear that it's really it's interesting to see what other other people you know think of when they when they see your work as well um and yeah for me it it is about sort of having each one has its own kind of character and its own Mm -hmm personality um and a friend of mine which I I was really interested to hear because a lot of the colors I think yes they're really kind of beautiful and and colorful and happy but also in nature those kind of colors um can also be a warning that something is poisonous Mm. and so I like that there's this kind of for me this duality of like it's beautiful it's happy but it could also be poisonous and dark which I think is kind of maybe still a theme from from some of my older work of like this idea of of this duality of sort of beauty and, yes. and maybe danger. Yes. Um, and yeah, and I'm just as you said for me, it's become so much about the process. Like I'm doing all these paintings, and then um, I've been keeping just so many sketchbooks and just drawing and drawing and drawing. Um, and I haven't, I haven't posted most of that stuff. I've got my one moleskin sketchbook that you mentioned, um, which I just, it's a terrible sketchbook to draw in actually, because the paper's really thin. Okay. It's not made for drawing. It's made for writing. So the paper's really thin. It ble- the ink bleeds through on the pages. I've had to glue a lot of the pages together to make them thicker. Right. Um, 
but I just, I love that. I love the color of the paper and I love the grid. So I'm kind of <laughs> pushing yeah. it to, to work uh, as it is. Um, but it's just, yeah, I think, I think for me, a lot of it is I'm just, I'm just doing it because I enjoy it and I'm just really allowing myself to really, to just be a bit more free, I guess, a bit more kind of just, just do whatever you, you kind of feel, feel like doing, which has been really great. Yeah. Um, And do you think that you will bring in other kind of mediums that you've previously used and enjoyed working with, like the jewelry and the wearable art again? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't, I don't think I won't do that. I don't, I don't see, I don't have a definite plan, but you know, I still, you know, I still like making sculpture. I still like doing metalsmithing. So I, I could definitely see myself, you know, doing that again in the future. Nice. Um, you know, and I am hoping to kind of in the next little while right now, I'm just focusing so much on making, but I'm, I'm thinking about trying to, to contact some galleries and maybe do an exhibition um, either maybe in Lagos, which is where the nearest city where I live, or um, I have some, some friends who might be able to point me in a direction in Lisbon. So, and I'd love to do it back in London when, when yeah. that's possible. <laughs> yeah. Well, let us know, please. We would, uh, I would love to attend. I'm sure the listeners would as well. So yes, keep us posted. Thanks. Yeah. It'll just be, you know, once I get kind of a good collection of, mm. of pieces and then just finding the right place to, to put them up. Right. So. Nice. What is the art scene like in Portugal? Because I don't really know, you know, much about it. Of course, like in the bigger cities like Lisbon, like you mentioned, I'm sure there's quite, you know, uh, museums and galleries. And yeah. Stuff. yeah. yeah. Um, if I'm totally honest, I don't really know what the art scene is like in Portugal because I've not really been a part of it. I've been just yeah. me in my studio in the middle of nowhere. Right. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I don't I don't really know a lot of, you know, for me, like in London, most of my friends are artists because they're people that I met from, from university or from ex- exhibiting and things. Yeah. Um, but I haven't really had that here in Portugal. So it's still quite a different experience. Yeah. It's still a new thing to explore. Yeah, for sure. Especially as things start to open up and we're able yeah. to, to go back to Lisbon and to, to do those. There's actually an Ai Weiwei exhibit in Lisbon really starting, I think in the next few weeks yeah I'm hoping wow to go. yes you should go yeah a friend of mine was saying I think it's it's on until November so I'm quite excited that we'll, we'll likely be able to get up and and see it by then so yeah definitely wow that sounds amazing okay and do you ever I don't know or have you thought about should I say taking any I guess influence in your art from Portugal like I for example love the traditional Portuguese tiles um but have you taken any artistic influences from your surroundings um I mean I think definitely just the nature basically Mm. um because all my work is kind of plants and weird botanicals and things um and I've been doing a lot of drawings of now every so every Saturday they have like a a local market like a farmer's market outside 
And now it's become our tradition of my daughter, who's four. We go there and we pick a, she picks a bouquet of flowers because there's a whole bunch of people selling like kind of wild flower bouquets nice. for like a euro or so. And so she goes and picks one. Then my son also picks one. And <laughs> and then we go home and we cut the stem, like trim the stems off and put them in a, in a vase and stuff. And so I've been drawing a lot of those flowers just for fun because it's on the table. Um, so I think definitely those kinds of influences. Um, I'm not sure if I'd say they're particularly Portuguese, but yeah. just more, more you know, plants and and being being outside and seeing all these kind of things has definitely been really inspiring to me. I love how you've brought the children into that process of, as well, like allowing them to kind of choose the the flower yeah. and drawing them. That's special. Oh, and they love doing it this week because um, a friend of ours was here. We didn't, we weren't able to actually go to the market. And my husband the other day was saying, oh, I'm going to the supermarket. And he asked our daughter, do you want anything? And she goes, you need to buy a bouquet of flowers for mama. (laughs) Because she realized we didn't have one from the market. So she was like, it was now it's this thing of like, we don't have flowers. She's like, something's wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's true because flowers, they have just such a, a nice energy as well. And they're just so nice and bright around the home. And I guess it's become like a routine as well. So she's probably used to it. <laughs> yeah. And I and I quite like these kind of wildflower bouquets as well, because yeah. they're not as, um, I don't know, they're, they're more kind of a little bit crazy and you get all different <laughs> kinds of flowers. And for drawing, it's, it's really interesting to have, like, they have different textures and different shapes and different little weird green bits and stuff it's really it's visually it's really interesting really I love that no and I love that because it's I don't know when I think about like flower paintings I think of like Van Gogh's sunflower and like I remember drawing that in school but like if we had a like opportunity to to draw like wildflowers that could have been really interesting I really enjoyed art because I did art as a GCSE at school so I did like a lot of printing and then I used different forms of art as well like um, digital work and then I did um, I used a lot of um, Campbell's uh, soup tin um, inspiration Mm -hmm. um, and I did like a a piece um, and that was actually put up in the school that was my first piece of art that was ever like framed and um yeah it was nice it was a proud moment um and I enjoyed that but yeah it's nice to work with things that are quite unique and different shapes and textures so yeah awesome I can't wait to see some of the the work thanks yeah I'm still still working on I've I've actually just got a bunch of um, acrylic paints I'm going to start doing some painting like bigger painting as well nice um I just I don't know why I find I bought all these acrylic paints and every day I'm like okay today I'm gonna do like start a painting and then I end up like with the watercolor stuff like oh I'll just do this one first and then I just end up, I think it's intimidating at the moment trying to do it right. but that's the thing I'm saying with art like you just have to just do it just get into it yeah um, and it's funny how sometimes we hold ourselves back you know for for no real good reason. Um, from from producing what what we want to do it's kind of yeah everyone does it yeah and you get this this kind of intimidate you almost intimidate yourself yes you get stuck you're like oh no it's not going to be good enough I shouldn't do it and you're like no that's why you should do it Uh uh-huh 
And also so you can do you another are, and another. Yeah, I, absolutely. And when you are in the process, then you're like, oh, like I could have like done this ages ago. This doesn't feel that bad at all. Yeah. And you're like, oh, this is actually fine. And why <laughs> did I, yeah, why did I hold myself back from doing this? It's really silly. <laughs> well, take each day as it comes. That's how I see it. But um, now moving on to my favorite part of the show, which is pets. And I'm so excited to talk to you about this because you've obviously been sending me lots of your pet photos. And I'm like, what on earth? Why have you never shown me these before? Like, these are so cute and adorable. People normally just share the photos of their pets, though. I don't know. Like, yeah, definitely. Animal people love to show photos of their pets. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm weird that way. Like. My my friend Katie, who you actually talked to, is also saying she's like, "You are my only friend who never sends me pictures of your children." And I'm like, "Why would you want to see pictures of my children? Why would you want to see pictures of my pet?" Like, I don't know. I just it's one of those things. I just sort of feel like I have the pictures. I like them myself. I flip through them on my phone, but I just never occurred to me anyone else would want to see them. Of course, of course, we want to see them. Like they're just adorable. So yes. Maybe that could be, I don't know, something you might want to do going forward. Yeah, yeah. share them with the people that really want to see them because I'm sure yeah. they <laughs> Start adding, adding pet pics. Exactly. Um, but yeah, tell, tell me, tell us about your life and journey with pets. What has it been like so far for you? So I've... I've interestingly, I feel like I've had sort of two types of pets. Well, three mm. types of pets. I've had... A lot of the kind of when I was younger, the crazy exotic animal rescue pets. Um, And then I had what I I guess I would call city pets. Like I had three French bulldogs who were Mm -hmm. just honestly probably the loves of my life. The three of them. They were amazing. Um, And sadly, they all have, have since passed away. But I had Gordo and Laika who were brother and sister, but from different litters. And, um, Laika was just the most loving, the sweetest, the funniest little dog. (laughs) And she apparently, like, she wasn't even going to be mine from the breeder. I had already had Gordo because he was a bit older Mm -hmm. and I went to visit the puppies and they said, Oh, this is the one they showed me this puppy. And they're like, this is the one that we had picked out for you. And I'm just staring locked eyes at this other puppy. And that was like, what about that one? He's like, oh, that one's going to a show home. She's going to be a show dog. Oh. I'll tell you what, Leica is not a show dog. <laughs> she would have been a terrible, she would have been a terrible show dog because she never listened. She was really like hyper. She, the idea of like having to walk around a ring and all that and stand still would not have been for her. Okay. Um, and we also used to joke, I hate, I hate to speak badly of my, my love, but Gordo had the looks and Laika had the brains. Right. <laughs> she was a very clever dog, but she was not a beautiful like specimen of a French bulldog. Yeah. Um, anyway, so the breeder sort of like, this is your dog. And I'm just staring at this other dog. And he was like, do you want to pick it up? And I was like, not if I can't have her. Mm-hmm. And he like, he gives, he gives me the, the puppy and I just, look at her and I'm like oh my gosh and he's like man I want he, he looks he just looked at me and this dog and he was like that's your dog 
but wow. we'll find something else. Like, and I just burst into tears. Wow. And, and my friend was there with me and she was like, why are you crying? <laughs> I was like, I'm just so happy. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, so yeah, the two of them, they were just amazing. And then uh, mouse was um, a rest, well, a rescue dog. Cause the, another breeder, um, I found him actually when I was on holiday in France with a friend of mine and they were going to put him, she was looking for a dog and she mm-hmm. went to this French bulldog breeder and I saw him and he had a really bad cleft palate and was going to have to have uh, surgery, like quite mm-hmm. an extensive surgery. And they were going to just put him down. Oh, no. And so I convinced them to give him to me. Yeah. And then I, pr- and then I probably shouldn't admit this, but we, smuggled him across the border into the UK in oh, cool. my car. <laughs> yeah. Anything to declare? Nope. Nope. <laughs> nope. Lucky Dogs running quiet. all around. Yeah. He was quiet and small. So oh. yeah, we smuggled him back in and then I, I got someone to do the surgery on him. Oh, and um, yeah, he was also just, just a great there. I mean, it's funny. I loved my French bulldog so much. Like I had a friend who taught them to skateboard. They could skateboard what? around Shoreditch. Yeah. I have a, video, no. a picture a video of them skateboarding. Um, Cause a really good friend of mine is a dog trainer and she, oh, nice. she wanted to, to get some videos of a dog skateboarding because yeah. um, like for her advertising. And so she asked if she could borrow my dog. Cause one of them mouse had a really good, um, instinct for it so yeah she taught him how to skateboard loved it um and and they're great as they say they were city dogs because you know french bulldogs they don't need a ton of exercise yes they're happy to go to hoxton square and run around after a ball for 20 minutes yeah that's it um and i would say now i have country dogs yeah yeah um what are they like so when we first moved to Portugal, our neighbor across the street from us basically showed up on our doorstep and was like, uh, do you want a dog? My dog had babies and I can't keep them. Oh. And I was like, I was like, no, we don't want a dog. We just had a baby. We've already got Gordo is still alive back then. Okay. And, and our, our house is called Quinta de Gordo, which is ah. the farm. Well, so even funnier, Gordo means fat in Portuguese. Oh, no way. So, so it's the fat farm. And everyone's <laughs> like, Everyone's like, why did you name it that? And I was like, it was after my dog. <laughs> um, so, of course, I was like, no, I don't, want a, I don't want a puppy. No way. We can't have a puppy. And then, of course, I was like, why don't we just go look at them? And then you're, you're done. When you go look at them, you're getting one. <laughs> so we got Pato. And Pato is Portuguese for duck. And he is, man, he is a lovely dog, but he is a handful. He's so much energy and he's a big dog. Luckily he has a lot of room to run here. Right. But man, for ages, he was like, he'd just be like, Oh, I'm going to go walk into the village and just take off down to the village, see some other dog friends. Like he's famous or not area, but you know, I'm always worried he's going to get, man, he's going to get hit by a car or someone's going to steal him or something like this. So we built a fence, a two meter fence around the whole property. Uh, only to find out that he can jump a fence. No, he can yeah, jump just, that high. Yep, sailed right over it. So then yeah. we had to put. So my husband figured out the areas that were 
that he was jumping over and we had to like put extra fencing on all these parts mm-hmm. to, um, but now he's pretty much here and we actually got, so we got two more dogs. We, uh, Akira was already 10 years old when we got her mm-hmm. and she had lived 10 years on a chain, just chained yeah. up outside with, you know, exposed to the elements, just, they used her for breeding and oh. yeah, she would not have a good, a yeah. good start in life. But, you know, I, I think that in some ways it's almost like, it's almost like she's so grateful to be in a house, to be sleeping on a comfortable yeah. bed that yeah. she's just so sweet and she's so gentle. Um, Whereas like Pato will come in and like knock the kids over. Like he just, (laughs) he's just, you know, yeah. Whereas Akira is always, she's so careful around them and she's just, she's very, um, I mean, she's older, so she's quiet, but she's, you know, she's just a very loving dog. And I think part of it is because she didn't have that, that kind of love. love. Um, And in some ways, you know, it's, it's so heartbreaking that, people treat animals badly and animals don't even like they forgive so, so easily. That's what makes it worse. Yeah. It makes it, it just makes it so frustrating that people would do that. I know because all they really want is just that love and security. And I don't see why you wouldn't give that to such a, you know, loving creature. Yeah. And they're so like, they're so loyal and it's just it's amazing to me that that anyone could have treated her badly um and then our third dog is duke he's a small dog the two first two are large large size dogs and duke is a small dog and honestly (laughs) he is the like stereotype of the small barking yapping i was about to yeah i was about to ask that small dog big personality oh god he's all the time Oh and drives my husband absolutely crazy. <laughs> um, but he also, he came from a, a domestic violence situation. Basically oh. someone posted on Facebook that there's a woman and a, a girl, a young girl who had, had left a, a domestic violence situation, mm-hmm. but they couldn't keep the dog because they were basically, they had, they had to leave quite quickly mm-hmm. and, and didn't want people to know where they were kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they were, they were hoping to find a house with kids because the dog and the kid really, really liked each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we kind of thought, yeah, we could take another dog. Why not? Like add to the, the pack. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he's, I, I think, I don't know for sure, but I think he was possibly abused a little bit as well. Cause he's even now it's been a year and he's still a little bit fearful of my husband. Right. Who is like, you know, who is, is not, you know, he's a very gentle person. You know, he's always gentle with the dog. Yeah. But I can tell like, it's a weird thing about going in and out of the door. Like, I think he wasn't allowed in the house or he got in trouble because he's, he was afraid to come in the house for a long time. Like I'd have to pick him up from outside and bring him in the house. And he was Mm -hmm. like, Oh, um, and he kind of flinches quite a bit, but he is, you know, he is, loves our kids. Like, yeah. I think he belo- he belongs to them more than to us. Yeah, point. yeah, yeah. He wants to be around them. Yeah. 
and he's he and Pato actually that are now really becoming really good friends and good. you know because we have all this space they run around like everywhere and um get themselves into trouble find <laughs> find disgusting bones and stuff on the, on the land and bring them to us <laughs> you know but but Pato like he could never survive in a city like he would yeah. if you had him in a city he would destroy your apartment in about 30 seconds oh my god <laughs> or you'd have to you'd have to be like a like an olympic runner who just took him running all day right because he just he needs. you know he just needs that that yeah. exercise and that space yeah. um but but yeah so i think it's it's interesting how the dogs have changed with with where we are yeah um, but i also i mean i i said when we adopted the dogs here that that i wouldn't i wouldn't buy another french bulldog because you know as much as i i love the breed so much and i i still sometimes honestly i'm driving in my car and i just cry about my dogs not being here anymore mm. um but i didn't want to support the breeding of them because right i think that you know it is you know there are complications with they can have with breathing and stuff and mm. um especially as they became more and more popular yes there were they were being bred in sort of not good conditions yep. because they were, you know, became expensive. Yes, exactly. Um, but, but I will say if I ever see a French bulldog that's looking for a home, I'm your girl. Uh, okay. Cause I would, I would love to get another one. It's just, it's hard to, it's hard to sort of support the, the breeding of them. But at yes. the same time, I, I just absolutely love that type of dog. Their their personality is yeah. just amazing. I was gonna say because basically, so one of my best friends, he um, he has a Frenchie, and um, it was actually his friends, and they did the typical thing which one of my uncles did with my cat as well um, by saying, "Oh, I'm just going on holiday. Could you look after my dog for a while?" and then just didn't come back for her. Um, <gasps> yeah, that's a typical thing. <laughs> yeah, that's a typical thing. Like, I, oh my gosh, I know so many people who have like been through this. Have been like, yeah, I'll take care of your pet, and then like the owner just hasn't come back, and it's just like, well, okay, I guess I'm keeping this pet now. But oh um, apparently, it's because um of her behavior, and I don't know if it's typical for Frenchies, but um, like I heard a few people saying that they that they're not very um good with their behavior and unless you really take the time to train them then they can um be quite a lot so I yeah think that's why he, that's fair yeah that's why he kind of like what is it's not fair I mean he should have at least asked first but um I'm glad that she's now no like, no such a good I meant it's I meant it's fair to say that Frenchies can be badly behaved yeah <laughs> yeah but I was quite lucky because one of my one of my really good friends in London uh, is a dog trainer. Yeah. So, exactly. so my two guys actually had quite mouse didn't mouse never really needed it, but Gordo and Leica actually did have quite a bit of dog training. That's good. Uh, when they were younger. Um, so yeah, I, I think mine were actually quite well behaved. Yeah. Um, and even, even saying they're quite well behaved, they could be a little bit naughty sometimes. 
times. <laughs> but they're they're kind of harmlessly naughty. Yeah, exactly. Mine more like that. Nothing, you know. I mean, Gordo ate a few pairs of sunglasses that I really oh, liked. No but, <laughs> but other than that, he was pretty. He was a pretty good, good guy. Yeah. Oh, bless. So you also mentioned to me that you had a cat for 20 years. So I'd love to know a little bit more. Yeah. About her. Yeah. I got a uh, Novik when she was, um, well, I was my second year at the Rhode Island school of design. Ah. And um, basically we went to the shelter, me and my roommate at the time. Mm. And we, we see that there was two, we could choose one out of two kittens and the shelter normally says they don't take cats until they're 10 weeks old. Mm. Um, but, but she was like, but between us, I'm pretty sure she's like six weeks old, but oh. the people that drop them off just lie. Right. And, and she said, we still take them because I'm worried if we don't take them, that they might do something bad to them. Yeah. Um, so she was tiny, six week old, tiny, tiny, tiny fit in the palm of your hand kitten. Oh. Um, and yeah, we brought her back and she just tore apart our first apartment, but yes. <laughs> as you do, um, but yeah, she lived with me in three different countries. So oh, wow. she was, I was in the U S when I got her. And then when I moved, I moved briefly back to Canada um, before I moved to the UK, she lived in Canada with me and then I brought her to London Oh wow! where she lived the rest of the rest of her days yeah um when she was in Canada she stayed with my parents when I first moved to London for like six months because I needed to like get an apartment and get yeah. settled and yeah. all that stuff but when I went back to pick up my cat my dad didn't want to let her go really <laughs> yeah he was like at first he was like oh, I don't want to take care of this cat no way <laughs> and then six months later I show up and he goes I think we should both stand on one side of the room and whoever she comes to ah. gets her <laughs> and I was like, I was like, dad, this is my cat. Like by then I'd already had her for like eight <laughs> or nine years. So I was like, dad, this has been my cat for like eight years. Like you're not, mm-hmm. you're not taking my cat. <laughs> and he was like, no, no, she likes me better. She doesn't want to move to England. She wants to stay here. The uh, flight's going to be, he's like, the flight's going to be stressful. She shouldn't go. I was like, okay. <laughs> that is so, yeah. She lived added to the, though, didn't she? She did. Yeah. She was, um, yeah, almost, she was, I think 19 and a little bit when she passed away. And I was, I was lucky. She, um, she was healthy pretty much the entire time. Like she didn't get sick for a long time. She was, uh, it kind of, she just, just passed away. So, yeah. Um, Yeah. She was a really, really lovely cat. And she used to play with Gordo and Laika, the two dogs. Wow. Um, they used to okay, they used to chase her around the apartment. Yeah. But then, but then when they would get like where they'd corner her or something, they didn't know what to like. They'd stop and just look at her, like, "Go, <laughs> run!" Like this is not the game; is not to stop. What's going yeah, on? Yeah, yeah. Um, I even actually put cat I, in my apartment in the shortage. I actually cut cat flaps into the doors to the bedroom. Ah, okay. So that so that she could go in and not be bothered by them. Yeah. Because by then she was starting to get older and I think the game was not so fun anymore. Yeah. <laughs> she was like, uh, you guys are annoying. So 
they're like younger um, siblings annoying siblings yeah kind of like they were fun at first but then she was like yeah you guys are just too much yeah uh, we also <laughs> had like really high window sills so she would always just jump up because the dogs were obviously really short so yes she, exactly she spent a lot of time on the window sills and a few times or gave me a heart attack she'd uh we had a terrace on on our building in london and it's on the third floor and there's a like a a rain gutter going around the whole side of the building and she used to walk in the rain gutter to Mm -hmm. our neighbor's house who owned the penthouse and just like hop up on his porch like hang out at his but i didn't know she was walking in the gutter so i couldn't figure out how she was getting over there for the longest time we panicking one time i saw her over there and i was like oh my gosh how is she gonna get back trying to call my neighbor and then he was like he was like oh she does this all the time no oh yeah and i didn't even know she's like oh yeah she just walks over here it's fine don't worry about it oh wow yeah so cats are hilarious yeah she was a really really nice cat and uh you know, I, I think of myself as more of a dog person, but she was kind of the exception. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, she was the cat that I really, really loved her. Yeah. Um, although my four-year-old is begging us for a cat, so who knows? Yes. She loves cats. But, um, says, yeah. The problem is I I worry where we live because it's it's really quite, I mean, there's a lot of nature and stuff. I'm, I'm too worried that she's going to get hurt if we've got one because uh, you can't keep... There's no way to keep her inside, keep a cat inside here because the kids are always opening the doors and it's, it's hot, man. We open the door to get the breeze in and you know, there's foxes, there's like bigger dogs and all. I just think like, I don't think my dogs would be bothered, but I worry about other dogs and and, yeah, I just worry about her getting hurt or something out here. So I think maybe we have to wait until we, we live somewhere a bit more. I don't know, somewhere we could keep a cat inside or somewhere a bit safer. For right. Yeah, I see. Of course. Oh, but I'm um, talking about children and pets. Do you think that they can really help with a child's development? I, I think pets and kids are the best thing to have together. Yeah. Um, there are studies actually have been done. You know, it's the year where everybody's talking about your immune system, but they did yeah. studies showing that kids that, grow up with pets um, in the house actually have much stronger immune systems than kids who don't Mm -hmm. and are less likely to have allergies later in life. Mm -hmm. Um, Partly just because pets are filthy. They're bringing all the good bugs inside. (laughs) Um, And also, you know, just even teaching, teaching empathy, teaching, Mm -hmm. um, you know, how to care for, for something else that's, that's not, you know, they, they can't take care of themselves. You know, you got to feed them. And our kids help feed the dogs now. They help, um, you know, they don't, we don't really walk them, obviously, because we have, they just run around outside. Yeah. But we take them occasionally for walks. Like we have a, a neighbor who's maybe a kilometer away okay. and the kids like to go on a hike to her house. And some, mm-hmm. sometimes we walk the dog. There's still, kids still have not figured out you actually have to hold on to the, to lead the whole time but they're getting there Um, but I think definitely they're they're a really good um, combination I think 
you know, you hear stories about people being told to like, oh, you're having a kid, you can't keep your pet, I think is yeah, is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think, I think that growing up, I mean, I grew up with dogs when I was a kid and I, I loved growing up with dogs. You know, I think it was always really, really great to have them as part of our family. Yeah. You're right. It does, it does teach children how to be more, you know, empathic and kind. And yeah, you can really see that when, you know, the difference. And I think, you know, I encourage families as well. So as you know, like I'm nannying. So I convinced my current nanny family to get a cat during the lockdown. And honestly, I feel like it has really brought them even closer as a family as well. Um, And I can kind of like see the difference because so the little boy's an only child as well. So now that like they have a pet, I feel like he's enjoying that interaction as well with with something else other than mum and dad so yeah no for sure and it's you know they've got someone to give their secrets to they can talk to the pet they can you know all those sorts of things and I mean our bigger dogs don't tolerate it so much but you know my kids like to try and you know sometimes try and put a jacket on the dog (laughs) this kind of stuff where they're trying to figure it out and and then but they also are are really good at sort of understanding like okay I don't think he likes to wear a jacket maybe you should not do that and they you know they learn about 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 boundaries about um you know how to just how to take care of something and I think the act of caring for an animal is is a really good um a good lesson to learn it's a good thing to to kind of do as a as a young person it is do you have any tips for first-time pet owners at all? You have a lot of experience with animals. So, um, yeah, what are your tips? And also, it'll be interesting to hear about your thoughts on exotic pets as well. Uh, my first thing I would say about exotic pets is, number one, make sure you learn about how to take care of the pet you're getting mm. and its specific needs before you get it. of the animals that I rescued that were exotic pets were because people didn't know how to take care of them. Right. They were feeding them the wrong food. And so they weren't getting enough calcium and their bones were messed up or they were, you know, just not understanding that a lot of, especially reptiles and stuff Mm. need a lot of care. You know, Mm. like people don't, don't sort of understand that like they need specific foods they need a heat lamp they need you know the right environment is really important so learn about if you want to get an exotic pet learn about what they're going to need and what it's going to entail before you bring it home mm-hmm. um i'm a big fan of of older dog adoption as well especially mm-hmm. since we've adopted akira um i think that the great thing about getting an older dog is i mean number one you know what you're getting mm-hmm. like Especially, you know, if you're in a city, you have to consider the kind of dog you're getting and your lifestyle. Mm. Um, You know, for example, like my French Bulldogs were great when I was in the city because they were lazy dogs. They were not dogs that needed a huge amount of exercise. (coughs) Sorry. And um, I think that, you know, just 
just being aware of what, yeah, what, I mean, what kind of, what kind of needs your animal has before you, you decide on them and different breeds of dogs have different needs. Mm-hmm. Um, so finding one that's, that's good for, for you, for what you like to do. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. And usually like, if you do go to like, a rescue place or Battersea, for example, what we have in London, they usually match, like, so they ask you about your life and, like, they come and look at your home and then they'll match you with the type of cat or dog that they think would be suitable. Yeah, and that's that's a really good point as well. Listen to, if you're going to adopt, listen to the people who run the, the adoption centre because they know those animals really well. Yeah. Um, like when we went and we got Akira, we were looking at, you know, a bunch of other dogs as well, but you know, some of them, they were like, this dog is not good with children. This dog mm-hmm. is not, um, it's not good with other dogs. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you have to make sure, you know, we brought our dog Pato to the adoption center to meet Akira and to meet some of the other dogs because, you know, we wanted to make sure that they were going to, going to get along as well. Cause that's really important. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, yeah, older dogs, I think sometimes they, they get overlooked a lot because mm. yeah, unfortunately you're not going to get to spend 20 years with an older dog, yeah. but the time that you are going to have with them, I think is, is going to be, especially for them is going to be really important. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they're, they're usually calmer. They're you know, if you have kids, like an older dog is, is probably not going to tear up your, your house. Um, and, and at least in our case, like I, I really do feel that she's so, she's so grateful just to have, you know, to have a family, to have a comfortable life for the rest, for the rest of her life. Yeah. And I think it's a really, it's a really great thing if you have the ability to give that to an older dog, I think it's a really great thing to do. Yeah, me and my partner speak about this all the time as well. Like we say that when we, you know, get settled somewhere, we definitely love to get like rescue dogs and cats, like the older ones as well, because the ones that are overlooked and not given a home, because like you said, they're so appreciative of having that and I think it's just nice you know especially after if it if their life has been quite I guess traumatizing before getting rescued it's just nice to then give them that happy life they deserve yeah it's great it's great to feel like you're giving them a second chance yeah exactly exactly but um, yeah, it's been really nice speaking to you, Kelly. I've really, really enjoyed this conversation and you've shared really like invaluable tips about pets. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It was really great to talk to you too. No worries. But um, lastly, if our listeners want to find out more about you, your accounts online, where can they find you? Uh, I'm mostly on Instagram now. So it's uh, Kelly, just my name and then underscore and then McCollum. And yeah, you can see some of the work I've been doing and I would love you to stop by. Thank you. I'll be sure to put those in the show notes and have a lovely rest of your day, Kelly. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. (laughs) 
Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. We have some amazing guests on the show who share such invaluable advice, stories and inspiration. Can you do me a favour? If you like this podcast, please could you rate, review and subscribe. This will help us reach people who can benefit from listening. Another way you could help is if you could tell a friend who you think might enjoy this podcast too. See you next week. Goodbye.